You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We are jumping into a new series today. Today I'm going to go word for word through what Brandon just read. Um, now we are jumping into Genesis. Let me give you a little preview as to why we're doing that, and then we'll try to just today get, it, get an introduction, get our feet wet into this great book. Uh, this is our second year as a young church, as most of you know, and we've talked about how our, our goal this year, in preaching anyway, and as the conversations flow from that, was to kind of get our minds around what is church, what kind of church has God called providence to be, how does that work out in, in our lives. And so we spent the first part of the year in the book of 1 Timothy asking the question, what is church proper? And what does the church do? We dealt with a lot of things kind of from a functional level in terms of worship and government and that sort of thing. Then we did a five-week series on our worship service. What is the worship of the church and how does it form us? So we walked through the elements of our service. Again, trying to just entrench ourselves in what it is we're doing here and what God has called us to. And so for the summer, we want to look at Genesis. And it's not like really apparent ties to how Genesis helps us understand the church. But uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that one of the things we're always talking about is that we would be a gospel-centered church. And that, word, that is such a loaded statement. I mean, there are so many things involved in that. And we've done a lot to talk about sort of the truth of the gospel. If you were here when we gospel-centered life, you walked through this whole cross chart. There's all these diagrams for the gospel. One of the things we make reference to a lot that we haven't walked through explicitly is the story of the gospel. Uh, Genesis sets forth for us the foundations of the whole story of the gospel, of creation, and fall, of redemption, and it points us toward a new creation. And in, in some ways, in many ways, all of Scripture from Genesis on really is just an unfolding of all the stuff that we see in Genesis. It's like the bearing of the seeds that are planted in the text of Genesis. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend five weeks in just the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, we're going to talk, we'll do an introduction today about creation, and then next week, James, we'll talk about humanity, we'll talk about work and rest and marriage. All of that, all the foundations for those things are laid in these first two chapters. And then for the rest of the summer, we'll work our way at least through Genesis 11. Okay? Now, today, just Genesis 1. And I'm going to have to spend a little bit of time on here. Uh, getting us oriented in the correct way in Genesis 1. There's, there's a number of ways people approach just this text, Genesis 1. Uh, one is to say that it's myth. In other words, it's, it's entertaining, it's deeply symbolic, but not actual, not real events being talked about here. Of course, the Christian worldview is that you know, Genesis is conveying something that is real. Another approach uh, to Genesis 1 is to, is to look to it to be something like a historical narrative. So when you, for instance, get to the book of Acts, you have Dr. Luke saying, okay, Theophilus, I have researched all that has gone on, I've gotten accounts from witnesses, and I'm putting it together in an orderly fashion for you so that you might understand what has happened and what's happening. It, it, that's the lens of history. Luke is going to lay out real clearly according to the events. And I'm going to get some of that in Genesis 2, but not Genesis 1. Some approach Genesis 1 uh, as if it is meant to be scientific. So those people are looking for detailed answers about how. How did things begin? How young or old is the earth that we live on? How young or old is humanity? How did it happen? 
And I would just suggest to you that, that Moses' intent, I think Moses or Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, his intent isn't about how. This is like a real basic principle of a Bible study that's helpful here. We always have to ask the question, what did the author mean to say to his original audience? And there are no biblical scholars that think that Moses, when he wrote this, had on his mind the evolutionary faith. Evolution is an important topic, but it is a relatively new discussion. That's not what Moses or the Israelites were thinking about. Moses had on his mind not questions about how, but who and why. Who created this planet? And why? What does it all mean for us? The secondary issues are important. Uh, so, for instance, there's a big debate about what the word day is in Genesis 1. Is this, is this a literal 24-hour day? Uh, there are lots of Christians that I respect and love academically and personally that, that would love that. But there are also lots of Christians throughout the centuries that would, would say it's not a 24-hour literal day. And, and the key issue of the debate is what kind of literature are we looking at? Because that gives us uh, some insight into the purpose for which it's written. Now, look, I'm not going to solve that for you right here because I can't. But I only bring that up to say when we come to issues like that that are somewhat secondary to the text, we have to be charitable. It is good to debate, it is good to study, uh, I like a good argument, but at the end of the day, the gospel demands that we would be gracious toward one another in issues that are periphery to the text. What we must come to agreement about is that God, Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth. I will fight you over that. All right? How long the day is, I will debate, but I will love you in the end. All right? Moses' concerns, I think, are not scientific, not historical, certainly not mythological. I think they're theological. And we get a hint of that with just the style of literature. This is, this is really tough. It's, it's got elements of poetry, but it's not exactly like Hebrew poetry. It's got elements of like song or prose, but it's not exactly fit the mold of those things. Uh, Bruce Walke, maybe his name is not Bruce, but it's his name He calls it exalted prose narrative. In other words, it's like a prose narrative, but it has this exalted sort of poetic language. It's much more like song than it is science. Moses is leading God's people into the promised land. And he's trying to account to them how things began. What is he trying to get after? Not how. He wants them to connect the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the Creator they know the stories of their forefathers. But the story of Genesis 1 is much bigger. What Moses is saying is, no, our story is that our God is the creator God. The one who is without beginning. The one who creates by his word and blesses. He has chosen us and made us his people. He has blessed us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the creator God. He's our God, and we are His people. Moses desperately, I believe, wants His people not just to know about Yahweh, but to know Him. To be in awe of Him, to worship Him, to be moved by Him. And I think if we look at Genesis 1, that's what God wants for us. To be moved by what Moses accounts for Genesis. If you get bogged down in the how, you'll miss the who. This is about God. 
Todd told a story last week about uh, a story from Les Miserables. Beautiful, moving, compelling play. I have a story about Les Miserables. It's a little different than Todd's. Um, the summer after my senior in high school, a friend and her family took me to see the production of Les Miserables. I'd never even heard of it, didn't know what it was, but we had some of the best seats in the house. And when you walk in, they give you a little piece of paper. Okay, cool. I didn't read it because I didn't know I was supposed to. And uh, I was just waiting for the, for the show to be. And so it began, and to my surprise, it's all singing. And like words that I can't, I can't really make out what they're saying. I have no clue what is going on. And so here I am, front and center, in this moving, beautiful, compelling story. And I fall asleep in the middle of it. How can that be? Well, I think we have the same kind of challenge when it comes to the gospel. I mean, you can hear the gospel preached every week here. You can talk about it in your gospel communities. You can open the Bible and read it. But often, we're not moved by it. Sometimes the problem is knowledge. Now, we have a number of people in our community who are new to the Bible, new to church. And so you walk in here and we're reading from 17th century catechisms. And we're singing songs and lyrics that I don't quite understand. I mean, it feels like there's a lot to catch up on. And it's like, it feels like you didn't read the background material when you walked in the doors. And so part of our heart in Genesis, the preaching through Genesis, is to give you the background material. Uh, this will give you a foundation for so much that we talk about. For others of you, the issue isn't knowledge at all. Uh, you know the facts of the gospel. You can tell it to me. But the music of the gospel is faint in your soul. You've got the lyrics memorized, but you forget how the song goes. So our heart in Genesis is much the same as this chorus that we sang just a minute ago. I feel like Genesis 1 is saying to us, come on and sing out. Let our anthem grow loud. There's one great love, Jesus. Because what you're going to see is that Genesis 1 points us to Jesus. Um, especially Genesis 1 is written so that you might be in awe, so you might worship, so that your heart might be stirred to this great creator. So here's what we're going to do. The first verse gives us some insight into what's in this chapter. If you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1. It's like on the first page. Here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there's three things I think this chapter is about. Uh, one is, it's about in the beginning. And that points us to a story. Right? So we're going to talk about the gospel story in the beginning, God. So here we have the protagonist of the story. This is about God. He's the primary mover. He's the one shaping the action. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the setting of the story. This is where the story of redemption unfolds. And so we're just going to look at these three things pretty simplistically. We're going to read this text to see what it has to say about God, what it has to say about creation itself, and about the gospel. So let's begin with God. I just want to walk through this a little bit with you. So again, if you have it, let's, let's follow through. And let's just pay attention and read. What does this tell us about the beauty and the wisdom and the glory and the majesty of our God? Alright, let's start back in verse 1. In the beginning, God. So right away, you know what this is about. Not just this, but the entire Bible, the entire story of redemption is about God. 
And he's not just in the beginning, he's before the beginning. I mean, the story assumes a God outside of the story. And so our God is without beginning. He is not dependent on anyone, anything. Uh, we'll, we'll see here in a minute that He is one, He exists in community. We call that the Trinity. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in community, they are eternally self-existent and joyful and happy and full of life. They don't need anything or anyone. But unlike anything else that's created, because He's the Creator. The Bible is about God, the Gospel is about God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Now, the eternal God, who existed before all things, created. This isn't like when you and I create a painting or a building out of existing materials. What's happening here is that God is bringing things into existence when there are no things. He's created from nothing. That's mind-blowing. There's no category for it. This word is only used for God. Well, well, he says this. He says, it speaks to his immeasurable power, his bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and transcendence, ultimately leaving the finite mortal that's us in mystery. What God is doing here, creating something from nothing, is, is astonishing. It moves us to worship. In the beginning, this eternal God creates something from nothing. What does He create? He creates the heavens and the earth. And this is just a way of saying everything. It's like our phrase from top to bottom. He creates all things from nothing. Uh, here we have a prologue of sorts in which we have this uh, eternity, sort of eternal God, and this pre-existed God making stuff. Right? And it's setting the stage. Because what's the nature of this stuff? Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And so what existed was, was dark, it was uninhabitable. But it's just beginning. Because the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. If this were a play, if this were a movie, we would be on the edge of our seat with anticipation. What is it? What happens is God speaks. Let there be light. And there was light. And he separates the light from the darkness. And he sees that the light is good. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. And that's the first day. Uh, there's so much that can be said here. But what I want you to see is that God creates something from nothing by his word. He speaks it. And it is. So God has brought light into the darkness and begun to, to bring form to what was formless and void. And so the next couple of days, days two and three, we're going to see him continue to bring form. And then in the last three days, we'll see him begin to fill what he has formed. So let's just briefly walk through this. We're going to cruise here. All right, verse six. We just did that light day. Uh, then God makes the expanse and separates the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so God called the expanse heaven. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. So the first day he makes light separate from the dark. The second day he makes sea and sky. The third day he pulls together the land. 
and, and it causes vegetation to sprout all over the land. So we have this, we have this form taking shape. God is a second glass. I mean, do you know how fun it is to create something? Just to bring something into order and see the beauty of it? That's what's happening here. God is saying, alright, so light over there, let's throw dark over there, let's throw water over there, there's the sky up there. Let's pull this together in the land. We got vegetation. It is good. It is good. This is awesome. And he's by himself. There's no audience. He's just happy in and of himself to be created. Day four. God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So we already have the creation of light, the form, but now there, he, he brings into function light bearers and gives them, he gives them governance over the night and the day. So he begins to fill that which has been formed. Day five, he makes creatures for the water that he had made and creatures for the air that he had made. And day six, he makes creatures for the land that he had formed. And then he makes man and woman. And humanity is at the, the crown jewel at, at the apex of the creation narrative. And I'm not going to get into much about the meaning. You've got a means to be made in the image of God because uh, James is going to do that next week. I don't want to steal. Right? So that's creation. And then on day seven, of course, he rests. What do we see here? Well, I think what we see is that God, by what He says, by what He does, is revealing Himself. This community that doesn't need anyone or anything, why would it create? Because it's just who God is. We were talking the other night in our gospel community, and Amy was sharing about her dad and just how he would bless her verbally over and over and one of the things he lets us talk about how is he does that just because it's, it's who he was. He was full of life and joy and love and it just, he had the capacity to bless because it's the kind of person that he was. God has the capacity to create and love and enjoy because it's just who he is. He has the capacity for that. God is revealing himself. The trying community is, is expressing themselves in communication. It's about God and all of creation sings the glory of God. It's what Todd in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Romans 1, Paul says this. says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His Eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. You see what Paul's saying? You can just look at what has been made, even in its fallen condition, and perceive the eternal attributes of God, the invisible attributes of God. Now, the problem in Romans 1 is that even though creation points us to God, we can miss it. And he's condemning these group of people because they have suppressed the truth that is so plainly evident. And the same is true for us. Even though we can be front and center and gather worship, we can miss the God when we worship. Because we're distracted, because we're slow to emotions, because we know the words, but we've lost the song. When you read Genesis 1, and, and the Bible, for that matter. I want you to come to the text with this primary thought. 
God is revealing Himself. May I see Him for who He is. May my heart sing the song of creation, which is the song of the gospel. Um, we told a lovely story before. Now I'm going to wake suddenly. The part of Logan's story that I love so much is that he's reading the Bible and he's just translating some of it into Chinese because he loves Chinese. He loves to write the characters. But as he's reading the scripture one day, the thought comes to him, this voice in his head just says, he's alive. This is really true. It's not symbolically true. It's not metaphorically true. It's really, really true. I want you to know that when you come before the Bible, it's the living Word of God speaking life into your soul. I want you to know that when you gather with God's people for worship, the living God makes His special presence known among us. His Spirit, as it were, even, hovering over, ready to stir our hearts to worship Him. Genesis 1 is about God. But also about what God has made. So I'm going to say just something very brief about that. In our culture, we, we tend toward two extremes when it comes to what God has made. I mean, again, we have a creation here. And so what does Genesis 1 tell us about how we're to relate to it? So here's the two extremes. On one hand, and this is particularly true among uh, religious people, there's this idea or this sense anyway that uh, creation is, is at least neutral, but maybe some, somehow opposed to God. And so there's kind of this ascetic theology where we perceive that holiness has to do with withdrawing ourselves, with denying ourselves the pleasures of this world. On the other extreme, you have uh, not just the green movement that seeks to save the planet, but you have uh, even further than that, it becomes sort of religious where God is actually in everything. It's a pantheistic view of the and when you get to that extreme, we're not just looking to take care of creation, we actually worship it. There is the hedonist tendency over here to make ultimate joy in life about indulgence in the creation itself. And so the Christian worldview rejects both of these. Because when God created, He said, it is good. There is a great deal of playfulness and joy and, and, and enjoyment of what God has made in this text. God Himself enjoys the creation. And so, again, some people's impression of Christianity is that the really holy people are the ones that are the least happy. You know, because they've withdrawn themselves from pleasure and they look only to God. Well, that's a silly view of, of God to begin with. Because God is full of joy. And if He's giving His life to you, you ought to be full of joy. God enjoys creation and you ought to enjoy but you don't worship it. This is the other tendency that we tend to go to. We're not ascetics. We're not hedonists. We don't make uh, our ultimate joy and pleasure in what the world has. Our ultimate joy and pleasure is in God. So this is what makes Christians the most unique people on the planet. We eat and drink and we love and we have fun. We enjoy the pleasures of this world. But if they're taken away, if we have a time of hardship, if we have a time of difficulty, for whatever reason, we don't have the pleasures that we enjoy, we say the Lord gives. 
The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, we love and enjoy creation, but if we don't have the pleasure that it provides, we have God, and that's what we really love anyway. Everyone else, it destroys them. If you put all of your life in the pleasure that you can get out of this world and it gets taken away from you, you become less of yourself. You're destroyed. You're ruined. But not the Christian. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So here's the proper way to think about creation um, along the storyline of the gospel. Creation is good, created in Genesis 1. Uh, creation is corrupted by sin in Genesis 3. In Romans 8, we see that Paul says creation itself groans and longs for redemption. And then in Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth. And the old earth, it says, is destroyed, but it's not the way that we would think about it. Um, it, it is renewed. In much the same way that uh, I am renewed in Christ, and I am, from God's side, anyway, more glorious than I could ever imagine being in my old state. The new earth, though there's continuity, but the old earth will be glorious beyond recognition. That's why God, or Paul says in Colossians, that God is reconciling all things to himself, whether things on in heaven or things on earth, through the blood of Christ. That's the storyline of the gospel, and that's how creation points us to the gospel story. The story of creation and all redemption is not just about creation itself, it's about us. And so I'm just going to close with this. I want to go back and look at a couple of verses in Genesis. And I want you to pay attention to some of the parallels between God's creative activity in Genesis and His redemptive activity in our lives as we read the New Testament. We're going to flip around a little bit, but hang on. As we look at Genesis 1, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, we have a God who has existed before the creation. And in Ephesians 1, that's what Paul says. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And so when you read Genesis 1, we see that God who exists before all of it brings it into existence and blesses it. That's our story. Before any of this happened in Genesis 1, God had us in mind. To bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is not a result of chance. You are not a result of some random chance. You are known by God and blessed by God. We look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. This was the uninhabitable situation of earth. See the gospel in that? What, what's going on? What state are we in apart from God? Moving upon us. Ephesians 2. Here's your state. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now over the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and our nature children of wrath of the rest of mankind. Uh, Romans 1, the passage that we looked at earlier, Paul says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, you get the sense that apart from God, we are this uninhabitable place by God's Spirit. Uh, we are lost hopelessly apart from God and without hope. Uh, one more text. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. We're just listening. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's our state. Dark, formless, and void. But the good news is that God is hovering. God moves against the darkness and the chaos. He brings light to darkness, brings form and order to the chaos. He does it in creation and he does it in his son Jesus. It's uh, the rest of that second Corinthians passage. So they are blinded, they do not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here it is. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Paul is quoting Genesis. Let there be light. The God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you can think back to what life is like apart from God. The futility of it. The darkness of it. And you can see now, looking back, that God was, he was hovering. He was moving through people and through circumstances. And there was a time when he shone the light of the gospel to your life. If that doesn't make you sing, I mean, if that doesn't give you joy, you've lost music. Some of you feel in that dark place now. I want, you, I want the same thing to be that Moses wanted for his people, because they certainly felt hopelessness. Moses wants them to see the power of their God and hope and find comfort in his faithfulness and his might. And so if you're going through times that feel like darkness, I want you to turn to the gospel, to Jesus who endured the darkness for you and take comfort in his love. Creation sings about God. It points us to the gospel and it asks this question. Can you join in with creation and sing the gospel? Song of worship by our God. What we need more than anything else is for the God who created us and blessed us to speak that word into our life. That we're good. That He's pleased. That we're okay with Him. We don't always feel it because we know we've sinned. We know we've Rebelled. We know we've either neglected or abused creation. So how can we sing? How can we join in a song of worship for God? 
Genesis 1 points to the answer. The only other book of the Bible that begins in the same way is the Gospel of John. And he's doing it intentionally. The Gospel of John begins like Genesis in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So this Word that God speaks into creation is not just a Word, it's a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him, not one thing was made through in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son, full of grace and truth. How you sing, how you join the song of the Gospel is not to muster it up. It's not to study more necessarily. It's to look to Christ. It's to look to the Word who spoke matter into existence, who He Himself became matter. The eternally pre-existent God took on temporal flesh. The joy of creation became a man of sorrows. The one who speaks into existence cried out, My God, my God, to deafening ears. To no avail. The source and the sustainer of life is crucified, buried in the grave. And three days later, in the aftermath of his death, when there was spiritual darkness and chaos, literal confusion, God was moving. Raises his son Jesus from the dead, victorious over darkness, sin, and death. And in his resurrection, he inaugurates a new creation of imperishable and unfading glory. In Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. We are a new creation. We've been recreated in the image of God through his son. Because of that, God looks at us and He says, You are good. I'm pleased with you because I'm pleased with my Son and you're in Him. Tim Keller says this, Until you hear the Father say, You are good, you'll exploit nature, you'll fear nature, you'll ignore nature, but you won't join the song. And we've sung the song already today. I'm just going to close with this verse here. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above, the church and earth. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.